Episode 11 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 3.1, The Development of Strategy and History of the Xenophytes. Welcome to War in the Book of Mormon. I am Brian Steed, and in this episode, we will discuss how the Xenophytes present readers of the Book of Mormon with the first examples and explanations of something that can be called strategy. This episode discusses the rough historical and political context of the events dealing with the Nephite colony in the land of Nephi, or Lehi-Nephi. The military significance of these events will be discussed in the following three episodes. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is in the story of Zenith, those who followed him and his descendants, the Zenophites, that Mormon begins to reveal the development of Nephite strategy. He provides information on the armor and weapons of individuals, the organization and actions of units or formations, the general disposition of forces throughout the area, and the general issues among the two major cultures in conflict. None of this is extremely detailed, but in this portion of the Book of Mormon, there are the first battle narratives and the opportunity to see how Nephites developed their concept of just warfare and the methods appropriate for use in it. Let me digress a moment to explain what I mean by a battle narrative. In short, this is a story of the battle, what happened, and why it happened. The most detailed battle narratives in the Book of Mormon include an explanation of the strategy for the battle, the conduct of the battle, the critical events that affected the outcome of the battle, and the outcome and possibly the repercussions of the battle itself. There is not a single battle narrative in the Small Plates of Nephi. The next episode will dissect the first one that we have. A second digression is an explanation of strategy. I have discussed this in some detail in an earlier episode. I just want to remind the listener that strategy is most simply the plan for how to accomplish success on the battlefield. It is the way to solve the problem. Mormon will offer a different word for strategy, as we are told by the end of the Xenophyte period, the Lamanites began the development of strategy, or cunning, as Joseph Smith translated it. This came as a direct result of the association with the Nephites and their language. In this era, the Xenophytes gained possession of the Jaredite record from the prophet Ether. The combination of experiences gained through the Xenophyte conflicts and the Jaredite record allow for the developments of Moroni that follow. It is here in the reigns of Zenith, Noah, and Limhi that the seeds of Nephite strategic thinking and practice are planted and nurtured, which will bear fruit in the time of Moroni and Moroniha, and even in the time of Mormon himself. It is also here that the seeds of Lamanite strategy will be planted. This episode and the next three that follow will address insights that come from a period that lasted about 80 years. This period includes two wars, six campaigns, 
and something like 16 separate battles or engagements or periods of conflict. I will primarily talk about the Xenophyte Colony War, which is named as it takes place in, around, and in defense of the Xenophyte Colony. I call the colony this to recognize Xenoph's role in establishing it and to distinguish these people and their battles, campaigns, and wars from the rest of the Nephite actions. Even though I focus on the Xenophytes, it is important to recognize that during this time there is also a civil war occurring among the Nephites under the reign of King Benjamin in the land of Zarahemla that takes place sometime around or between 180 and 170 BC. I want to provide a brief description of the scope of what we are talking about. The first Nephite kingdom was destroyed sometime around 220 BC. This destruction coincided with Mosiah I's departure from the land of Nephi and later his connecting with the Mulekites in the city and land of Zarahemla. About 20 years later, or 201 BC, an invasion was sent to reclaim the land of Nephi. I will explain in a bit why I characterize it this way. That invasion failed, but only a short time later, Zenith, who was part of that invasion effort, returned and peacefully concluded an agreement with the king of the Lamanites, or Laman II, for a Nephite colony to be established in that land. I call this colony and people associated with it Xenophyte, or the Xenophytes. The Xenophyte's story begins in the book of Omni. When we get this information, I quote from Omni chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. And now I would speak somewhat concerning a certain number who went up into the wilderness to return to the land of Nephi. For there was a large number who were desirous to possess the land of their inheritance. Wherefore they went up into the wilderness, and their leader being a strong and mighty man, and a stiff-necked man, wherefore he caused a contention among them. And they were all slain, save fifty, in the wilderness. And they returned again to the land of Zarahemla. And it came to pass that they also took others to a considerable number, and took their journey again into the wilderness. And I, Amalekai, had a brother who also went with them, and I have not since known concerning them. And I am about to lie down in my grave, and these plates are full, and I make an end of my speaking. Close quote. The writer Amalekai tells of an expedition to regain the land of Nephi. A reader is left without explanation. Why did they go up? Were these wistful Nephites longing for their highland home? Did these religious or political zealots desire to drive an infidel people from what they considered to be their land by right of divine gift? The record is mute on providing answers to these questions. However, there are definitely inferences that can be successfully and accurately drawn from this simple account. Later, one of the members of this first expedition, Zenith, provided greater insight into the fact that this was an expedition of conquest. Even this additional information leaves us with many questions. 
that the Nephites really believed they could kill all of the Lamanites and ethnically cleanse them from the area? Were they seeking to only fight and gain a limited area for future Nephite expansion? There is little information on these questions as well. Let us return to the inferences. The most important point of emphasis is that this first group of conquest knew that the Lamanites possessed the land, and they were not simply planning to homestead virgin wilderness. This was a military expedition. They were seeking to regain land by force of arms. Second, a change in the original intent was necessary, and the leader was unwilling to make such a change. The change was so essential that a significant percentage of the group were willing to go against their pre-appointed leader in an armed struggle. Finally, this was a large group, as stated, numbering at least in the hundreds of people. Otherwise, the Save 50 line would not have that much dramatic effect if only 100 or so departed from Zarahemla. Mormon makes us wait 10 chapters before we get some more details on this series of events and we meet Zenith. From this point on, I want to offer the parts of the Book of Mormon appropriate to what I am going to talk about so that you can read or listen to them prior to hearing this commentary. So as we talk about Zenith, this comes primarily in Mosiah chapters 9 and 10. The story of Zenith is fascinating. As we will discuss in a moment, it includes three different periods of conflict, including what I classify as four campaigns and at least five battles. The first period came at the beginning of his life, when he participated in the original invasion plan. The second, about a dozen years after the Nephite occupation of the cities in the land of Nephi against Laman II. The third was against Laman III and came near the end of Zenith's life. Generally, Zenith was an astute, competent, and visionary military commander. We will discuss some of his interesting perceptions and ideas in this episode, and more in the battle analysis in the next episode. Readers meet Zenith in an end-as-the-beginning type of story, as a rescue element from Zarahemla met Zenith's grandson Limhi in Mosiah chapter 7, verse 9, and Limhi provided the record of Zenith, and Mormon inserted Zenith's own words. These words are important, as Zenith is somewhat self-critical, and provides insights to weaknesses, strengths, and reasoning at the highest level. I quote from these initial words of Zenith from Mosiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 4. I, Zenith, having been taught in all the language of the Nephites, and having had a knowledge of the land of Nephi, or of the land of our father's first inheritance, and having been sent as a spy among the Lamanites, that I might spy out their forces, that our army might come upon them and destroy them. But when I saw that which was good among them, I was desirous that they should not be destroyed. Therefore, I contended with my brethren in the wilderness, for I would that our rulers should make a treaty with them. But he, being an austere and a bloodthirsty man, commanded that I should be slain. But I was rescued by the shedding of much blood, for father fought against father, and brother against brother, 
until the greater number of our army was destroyed in the wilderness, and we returned, those of us that were spared, to the land of Zarahemla, to relate that tale to their wives and their children. And yet, I being overzealous to inherit the land of our fathers, collected as many as were desirous to go up to possess the land, and started again on our journey into the wilderness, to go up to the land, but we were smitten with famine and sore afflictions, for we were slow to remember the Lord our God. Nevertheless, after many days wandering in the wilderness, we pitched our tents in the place where our brethren were slain, which was near to the land of our fathers. Close quote. The first thing I hope that you noted is that Zenith's words are in the first person. Mormon seems to have taken this account directly from Zenith's personal record. This will change when we get to Noah and Limhi, but Zenith's account is a first-person account. Why? There are a few other first-person accounts throughout the Book of Mormon. They mostly come from sermons and instructions of prophets. This is the only first-person historical account provided by Mormon in the large plates of Nephi until Mormon tells us about his own life, of course. Zenith began as a spy for the invasion army discussed previously. He was not any common spy, but a very educated one, taught in all the language of the Nephites. Listen to the previous episode to appreciate the significance of this last statement about language. He also had previous knowledge of the land of Nephi, probably not as a memory of living there, as the Nephites departed about 20 years earlier. I think that he must have traveled up to the land of Nephi previously, based on his seeming foreknowledge of the area. Zenith's selection as a spy is reminiscent of the spies sent by Moses to the land of Canaan that we are told about in the Old Testament book of Numbers. Moses did not choose common men, but a ruler of each tribe, as we are told in Numbers chapter 13, verse 2. It is probable, given the education level and experience described, and the fact that this reconnaissance mission, much as the ancient Hebrew one, required independent thought and action, and required a man of significant ability, and one who enjoyed confidence from the community, would be necessary. Zenith, by anecdote, and future selection as the leader of the next expedition, was such a man. Zenith suggested a change to the plan. No details are given as to what good he identified among the Lamanites, but it was sufficient to cause his rebellion from the will of the leader. One possibility for the change in plan could have been the size of the Lamanite population. It is possible that the Nephite invasion force was created to fight and destroy a group similar in size to that remembered by those contemporary with Mosiah I, who fled the land. In the case of my supposition, the Lamanite population had greatly increased over the years, and the Nephite force was no longer capable of defeating it, without enormous loss of life and property on both sides. Possibly, for this reason, Zenith began to think of alternatives. Maybe he also saw in the Lamanites those who loved their families and had similar cultural attachments to family and property, and Zenith felt that coexistence was possible. Whatever the reason, and whatever the alternatives, the leader of the party did not agree with Zenith's recommendations. 
and was so angered by the proposal or by the threat to his leadership and decisions that he ordered Zenef killed. Violent division of the group was a result of the order to slay Zenef. This caused an internecine struggle, resulting in significant casualties. As mentioned in the previous podcast episode, these people descended from a tribal culture and certainly began their life in the Promised Land with the political divisions of such a culture. The threat against Zenef may have inspired tribal and family animosities within this group, and each family or tribe sought to defend their own, resulting in the slaughter. Although we are also told that brothers fought against brothers, and fathers against fathers, which seems a little awkward in the sense of that seems cross-family, and brothers against brothers seems within family. The image of Nephites as aggressors, bloodthirsty, and not listening to the Lord runs in opposition to the standard depiction of Nephites in the Mosiah 1 period as striving to walk in line with the gospel culture. Zenith clearly lets us know this ideal was not always followed. His openness in communicating the weaknesses and errors within the Nephite culture that make it less than the gospel culture is one reason that I think Mormon included Zenith's own words in this account. Mormon was clearly a man who wanted to show the beauty of the gospel culture and the warts of any culture that lived to an ideal less than the gospel. Zenith returned to Zarahemla with the survivors of the invasion force, and then he reformed a colonizing force with which he returned to the land of Nephi, and he entered into negotiations with the king of the Lamanites, called Laman, or Laman II. Zenith was able to successfully negotiate with Laman II for the possessions of a part of the land. It is interesting that Laman II agreed to give this land to the Nephites, apparently without a sale price. Later, as Zenith recorded the event, he provided the insight of experience with Laman II and his people as to why this happened. I quote from Mosiah chapter 9, verse 10, Now it was the cunning and the craftiness of King Laman to bring my people into bondage, that he yielded up the land that we might possess it. Close quote. Here we see the use of the word cunning that I say is sort of a replacement for the word strategy. In the ancient Greek language, there was a word called metis, which is sort of a, a word that can be translated as strategy, but it's also sort of artsy or tricky, like a stratagem. And cunning fits within this view of metis. From this point forward, the people of Zenith will be referred to by the non-scriptural appellation of Zenephites. This is to limit confusion about which Nephites might be being discussed. Zenith tells us that the Zenephites repaired the walls around the two cities they were granted possession of, Nephi and Shilom, and that the people began to till the soil and raise grains and food. As a note, this is the first reference to walled cities in the Book of Mormon. A period of 12 years passed, and the Zenephites were prosperous and growing. Laman, too, became concerned. From Zenith's records, we can see that he possessed a very advanced understanding of what was going on in the Lamanite city of Shemlon. This could be simply his assumptions of the mind of the king, or 
it could reflect a well-developed intelligence network, not unlike that of the Assyrians alluded to in an earlier episode. Zenith's background as a spy would have made him sensitive to the benefits of having good intelligence, as we see later when he placed a great deal of emphasis on knowing and understanding not just the actions, but also the intent of his opponent. Layman II's unease led to the, at least one raid on the fields and flocks of the Zenophites south of Shilom in Mosiah chapter 9, verse 14. It is unclear whether this was the first such event in the wars and contentions Zenith mentions in the previous verse, or whether this was the largest of the contentions so referred. The battle that followed will be discussed in the next episode and will not be addressed here. It is worth a note that during this battle, the women and children were sent to the wilderness for refuge. This is important in identifying an aspect of Xenophyte psychology. The wilderness was a place of safety. This will recur with Alma and his followers. Noah's flight before an attacking Lamanite army, and the eventual departure of the Zenophyte community from the land of Lehi-Nephi. The success of the Zenophytes in this battle led to nearly a generation of peace between the two peoples. As explained in the battle analysis, I suppose that King Laman II took his army outside his land and up to Zarahemla, and was again defeated as recorded in Omni chapter 1 verse 24, prior to being sufficiently humbled to accept Nephite or Xenophite coexistence. Whether the suppositions of Laman II leading an offensive against Zarahemla is accurate or not, he did not again attack his neighboring Xenophites in his lifetime. Now, it is not supposition that there was a battle, because it is discussed in Omni chapter 1, verse 24, and King Benjamin led the defense against the Lamanite attack. It is connecting these two records that causes me to think why it fits in this period. It seems to be that Laman too was upset. It seems to be that he was defeated by Zenith, and therefore, well, not seems, we know he was defeated by Zenith, and that maybe he felt he could redeem himself by attacking Zarahemla, and that redemption failed as well, which then would have caused him potentially to cease further attacks. Zenith emphasized his efforts to get his people to toil and work in both periods of his rule, before and after the first defense of the colony. He talks of the work he caused people to do, this connotes his role as planner and organizer within the community. He was a hands-on leader who saw to all aspects of the community, from the food production to skilled artisans to the military. He initiated the first known semi-permanent or permanent security force mentioned in the Book of Mormon in Mosiah chapter 10 verse 2. He also encouraged innovation and imagination in the defense of their lands and people, as we are told in Mosiah chapter 9, verse 16. In short, Zenith was one of the greatest innovators in war in the Book of Mormon. I have no doubt that his lessons were particularly useful for Moroni's developments about 80 years later. This may be one of the reasons that Mormon was inclined to use his first-person account. 
The peace between Lamanite-Zenophite battles lasted for about 22 years. The son of Laman II was different from his father in at least one way, and that was that he did not continue the peaceful coexistence. He led an excursion against the Zenophites shortly after ascending the throne. The attack was not a surprise for Zenoph, and the king and his army stood ready. This second defense of the colony came close to the end of Zenoph's life and reign. He then handed over the rulership of his kingdom to one of his sons, who happened to be named Noah. Noah is discussed in Mosiah chapters 11 to 19. Now, most of those chapters deal with the prophet Abinadi and his prophecies and instruction. The story of Noah is really interesting in that if one looks at him objectively and secularly, he could be considered a rather successful politician. When looked at through Mormon's lens, he is a bad guy, and he will be used as the example of bad governance and the problems with kings. He governs for about 16 years, and conflict may have been a reality of the entirety or near entirety of his reign. Unlike his father, he didn't lead in combat, or at least it doesn't seem so. I classify the conflict as a single campaign with something like four battles. In general, what are classified as battles really were less like the Hollywood imaginings of a battle and more like periods of engagements, raids, violence, and intimidation. The period ends with a large attack from the Lamanites that drives Noah out of his capital city if you want to label it that, and into the wilderness where he is killed by his own people. Noah led a period of societal development in terms of building, architecture, agriculture, and probably other areas. He also ruled in a period of conflict decline. His father always seemed to know what the Lamanites were up to, and Noah did not. The guards, the army, and the people never seemed to be prepared. This is rather important in appreciating what Mormon might be teaching us through showing us these things. Noah tends to receive a negative interpretation from most Book of Mormon teachers and scholars. He is synonymous with the wicked king and is used as one of the justifications by Mosiah too for the change from rule by kings to rule by judges, as given in Mosiah chapter 29 verse 18. As the reader sees from the description of Mormon, this reputation is well-earned and deserved. However, we will discuss the positive that came from this reign as well. I quote from Mosiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. And now it came to pass that Zenith conferred the kingdom upon Noah, one of his sons. Therefore Noah began to reign in his stead, and he did not walk in the ways of his father. For behold, he did not keep the commandments of God, but he did walk after the desires of his own heart. And he had many wives and concubines, and he did cause his people to commit sin and do that which was abominable in the sight of the Lord. Yea, and they did commit whoredoms and all manner of wickedness. And he laid a tax of one-fifth part of all they possessed, a fifth part of their gold and of their silver, and a fifth part of their ziff, and of their copper, and of their brass, and their iron, and a fifth part of their fatlings, and also a fifth part of all their grain. 
And all this did he take to support himself, and his wives, and his concubines, and also his priests, and their wives, and their concubines. Thus he had changed the affairs of the kingdom. For he put down all the priests that had been consecrated by his father, and he consecrated new ones in their stead, such as were lifted up in the pride of their hearts. Yea, and thus they were supported in their laziness, and in their idolatry, and in their whoredoms, by the taxes which King Noah had put upon his people. Thus did the people labor exceedingly to support iniquity. Close quote. As the reader moves from the era of Zenith to the rule of his son, the record changes. No longer is there the first-person narrative, but now there is a third-person narrative. Assuming Noah kept a personal record of his reign, Mormon must not have liked what he said. Again, I want to emphasize the importance of Zenith's account in the first person. His words were the words the Lord wanted the readers to read, not an interpretation of them as we receive with Noah. The negatives of Noah were temporal and spiritual. He was lazy. He placed a heavy tax burden on his people. He encouraged others to live his lifestyle, and he differed from the traditions of his father. He changed the worship through the changing of ecclesiastical leaders, and he was an idolater. These were not positive. But there was more. Noah used the tax money to begin an aggressive building program of public buildings and encouraged the improvement and development of skilled artisans, as we're told in Mosiah chapter 11, verses 8 through 10 and 13. Two of these buildings were towers, one of which was sufficient height for a person to see into the land of Shemlon and see what the Lamanites were doing. He also sponsored the development of the expansion of agriculture into vineyards and wine grape production. It is the interpretation of a prophet of God that allows a reader to recognize the negatives and flaws in his actions. Many Roman emperors and other rulers contemporary with Noah are praised for similar accomplishments. Note that Noah was king from about 160 to 145 BC. The most famous Roman of that day was Cato the Elder. And it was in that period that the Venus de Milo was carved. It is unclear through Zenith's reign whether there was a standing military presence. The fact that Zenith posted guards implies regular and controlled service, but both battles fought under Zenith's command seemed to have been fought with a levy of citizen militia. In Noah's reign, the military situation seems to have changed. First, the reader is told of Lamanite raids coming into the land. The Lamanite raiders were not simply stealing, but they were killing Zenophyte herdsmen. There was more in the intent of these actions than simply acquisition of desired property. The son of Laman, or Laman III, was probably seeking to intimidate as well as acquire. The fact that Mormon emphasizes that they came in small numbers is important for communicating intent. Noah's response was to follow his father's example, as I quote from Mosiah chapter 11, verse 17. And King Noah sent guards round about the land to keep them off, but he did not send a sufficient number, and the Lamanites came upon them and killed them and drove many of their flocks out of the land. Thus the Lamanites began to destroy them 
and to exercise their hatred upon them. Close quote. It is not stated whether these guards were part of a continually existing guard force from Zenefstay, who were redeployed to this troubled area, or if they were a force newly raised after the old force had been allowed to end either through complacence or neglect. In either case, there was a miscalculation on the appropriate numbers to send, and the guard force was attacked in strength and destroyed. It is clear that the Lamanites had not been idle through the earlier period of guards or this new one. They seemed to have become familiar with the behaviors and actions of the guards sufficient to surprise them and annihilate them in total. Then the Lamanites stole entire flocks. The words at the end of verse 17 are important as it connotes a passage of some time. I want to provide some commentary on this as we go with respect to possible lessons for a reader. Mormon, through the story he tells, or what he shows, teaches of the importance of maintaining a standing guard force, a watchman on the tower, guards in the wilderness, and shepherds and protectors of the flocks. It is better that these people are prepared, present, and observant than that they come after the damage is done. If they are sent after the fact, then sufficient effort needs to be made to understand the correct number so that they can deter attack or withstand it when it comes. I often connect such instruction to conferences and the family and church councils in determining needs. We have prophets and inspired leaders who are modern-day watchmen and guards. We need to listen to them. When we don't, and harm comes, then our councils need to send the proper and sufficient assistance such that the rescue effort will be successful. Back to the story. The subsequent raising of an army by Noah did not happen within days, but it took time. I quote from Mosiah chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, And it came to pass that King Noah sent his armies against them, and they were driven back, or they drove them back for a time. Therefore they returned, rejoicing in their spoil. And now, because of this great victory, they were lifted up in the pride of their hearts, and they did boast in their own strength, saying that their fifty could stand against thousands of the Lamanites. And thus they did boast, and did delight in blood, and the shedding of the blood of their brethren, and this because of the wickedness of their king and priests." The description of this battle does not inform the reader about the object of the attack. It seems that the armies of the Xenophites simply attacked the camps or villages of those who had stolen the flocks and not the main Lamanite city of Shemlon. The actual objective or target is unclear. However, the armies did acquire some success or possibly some booty from the effort over which they could rejoice. It is noteworthy that Mormon uses the plural of army in this case. This is not insignificant. This is the first such time the plural is used for a single event. This denotes more than one organization and a possible change in how the Xenophytes conceptualize the command and control of the military force or forces that are sent. We will see a similar thing later in the most detailed battle under the reign of King Limhi, where different forces operate in concert. Once again, the first time this happens in the Nephite military history. 
Mormon also uses the verb sent in reference to the king. This implies that the army was not led by the king and might suggest that the target was not the major Lamanite city, or it may have been one of the reasons why Mormon called Noah lazy, meaning that he would not lead his soldiers in battle as was the duty of a king of that era. It is further possible that these armies fought a small battle against Lamanite raiding parties living in the wilderness between the two settlements and did not engage a major Lamanite army as few details are given about casualties or a fight outside a city. If these suppositions are true, it would place a greater level of importance on the prideful boasting of the Xenophyte soldiers. They defeated bandits and not soldiers, yet they behaved as if they had conquered the Lamanite people. It is in this environment of communal celebration that readers are introduced to the prophet Abinadi. His criticism of Xenophyte excess and behavior was not well received by the people, the priests of King Noah, nor by the king himself. The excessive boasting over what was probably a minor engagement would suggest that the people preferred their fanciful view of their prowess and lifestyle rather than the hard reality spoken by the servant of God. Abinadi fled for safety, but returned after a two-year absence to preach in disguise. He was taken before King Noah and his priests, and they conducted an inquisition that afforded the prophet the opportunity to preach and testify. At the end, he was sentenced to death by fire. The preaching of Abinadi was effective in converting one of the king's priests, a man named Alma, who was driven from the king's presence. Noah sent people, referred to as his servants, to kill Alma, and Alma and his followers fled deeper into the wilderness, where Alma then wrote the words preached by Abinadi. Abinadi was returned to prison, and after three days of deliberation, the king charged Abinadi with a religious crime and demanded him to recant. Abinadi refused and warned the king about the consequences of his judgment. The king, out of fear desired to release Abinadi, but the priests were able to inflame the king's wounded pride such that he had the prophet killed. During the conflagration itself, Abinadi continued to prophesy of the upcoming bondage of the people before succumbing to the flames. In this exchange of events, Mormon describes the king as having guards and servants, both of which were capable of lethal action. One possibility is that the guards and servants are two different words for the same people, much as someone might use the word cops and police to designate the same or essentially the same people. It is also possible that the guards represented official positions or state positions, and the servants were personal attendants of the king. If this was true, then the guards were probably the ones who performed the execution, which was a state-sanctioned event, but the servants were the ones sent to assassinate a renegade priest who might embarrass the king, a personal affront. The sentence of capital punishment for what was later termed heresy is interesting. It is informative that the legal system was based on religious teaching and laws. In the official court records, assuming they existed, Abinadi's crime was almost certainly blasphemy. Alma I continued Abinadi's work in secret as he taught the people, and they gathered to a place called Mormon. The king found out about these people through the efforts of 
his servants, and he determined that Alma was fomenting rebellion and essentially charged him with treason, and he sent his army to destroy them, as we are told in Mosiah chapter 18, verses 32 and 33. Alma and his people fled, having been informed of the approach of the army. They had 450 people in their group. The size of this group gives some idea of the possible size of the overall community, or at least gives us a scale, as one might think of Alma I and his followers as representing anywhere from 5 to 30% of the total, which would give a total Xenophyte population ranging from 1,300 to 9,000 or so. These percentages are simply a guess, but it helps to think about what we mean in terms of population when we say the Xenophyte people. The servant slash army returned after a vain search. Mormon said in Mosiah chapter 19 verse 2, and I quote, And now behold, the forces of the king were small, having been reduced, and there began to be a division among the remainder of the people. Close quote. Readers are not told whether this reduced army was a result of the recent search or whether this was a result of the previous two years of neglect, or the departure of members of the army with the people who followed Alma, or even that this was a standing army that had suffered attrition from normal, possibly administrative processes without being refilled. It is clear that Mormon wants the reader to understand this fact, as it is essential in explaining why the subsequent events occurred. Readers are introduced to a man named Gideon, who attempted to slay the king, the king was apparently confronted without his guards or servants, and Gideon was able to nearly kill him as he cornered the king on the large tower near the temple in the city. From this tower, Noah saw an attacking Lamanite army. He convinced Gideon to let him lead the people, which he did. He led those who would follow into the wilderness, where he was eventually killed when the people realized he left their families at the mercy of the Lamanites. The priests of Noah, who accompanied the king's party into the wilderness, fled further into the wilderness from their own people once they turned on the king and his loyal followers. Those Zenophites who remained in the city and faced the attacking Lamanite army used their young women to plead for their lives, and the Lamanites were softened, sufficient to allow the surrendering Zenophites to live and simply take the people into semi-independent servitude for 50% of all they produced, both manufactured and agricultural, as we're told in Mosiah chapter 19, verse 15. A new king was established from the same dynastic family who was one of the sons of Noah. I want to dilate on this point of 50% tribute of agricultural products for a moment. In the European early medieval period, it was not uncommon to have crop yields as low as 3 to 1 or even 2 to 1. That means for every grain planted, the field might yield 2 or 3 grains. This would mean that 50% of the harvest was needed for seed grain for the coming planting season. We do not know where the land of Nephi was or how many growing seasons there were in that land, so we cannot be sure of just how severe such a requirement was. However, I want to lay out the worst case, which is that this was a near starvation requirement. The Xenophytes would have to manage every harvest to the last grain and hope and pray that they could get yields in excess of three to one or they would die.
I place emphasis on this because in 2020, we live in a world of plenty. Almost no one in North America dies of starvation. In fact, health problems in North America are quite the opposite. In the land of Nephi in 144 BC, reality was almost certainly different. This levy was crushingly hard and societally threatening, which is why some of the extreme measures we will discuss were taken. The description of the fall of the Xenophyte kingdom as an independent kingdom is instructive in the neglect of the military and intelligence force. Mormon leaves few hints as to the reason for this decline, other than those previously identified. These include the following. The battles between Noah's armies and the Lamanites were probably only against Lamanite bandits or smaller portions of the Lamanite army, which allowed the Lamanite king to draw from a large untouched resource pool in his main settlement. The Xenophyte guard force was allowed to languish following the prideful boastings associated with the victory against the supposed Lamanite bandits. It seems that the armies or guard force were instead devoted to internal or or domestic policing of opponents of the king like Abinadi and Alma. The army, either citizen militia or standing force, was allowed to atrophy. The intelligence network that served Zenith so ably was completely non-existent throughout Noah's reign as he seemed to always be caught by surprise. His people were surprised by the Lamanite attackers. His people and city were surprised by a massive attack on the city. I want to emphasize the fact that Noah, with respect to spies, put emphasis on a tower where he could see things physically rather than seemingly having spies present in the Lamanite communities. There is a radical difference in effort and commitment between these two types of uh, spying. The last rule of the Xenophytes was in the position of rebuilding the security of his people while being tributary to the Lamanite king. His name was Limhi. And we get details of Limhi in Mosiah chapters 7 and 8 and 19 through 22. Like with Noah, we describe Limhi's reign with respect to conflict as a single campaign. But it took place over about 22 years or so. In this campaign of sorts, there are six battles or periods of conflict. One of these is a period of intimidation that included battery with some deaths, but not really battle per se. One of the battles will be discussed in greater detail in two episodes, and it featured some profound transformation in tactics and strategy. Limhi was more like his grandfather in that he led in battle, but he also combined some elements of his father in that he also seemed to have a subordinate commander or chief captain, if you will. Limhi came to rule in the worst of circumstances. His people were tributary to the Lamanites, and his army, already reduced before the Lamanite attack, were further reduced by the battle that occurred before the Lamanites were stopped in and around the city of Nephi. The Lamanites placed guards around the Xenophytes, probably in emulation of Xenophyte guards of earlier periods, and maybe even in the same places. Gideon, the attacker of Noah, gained a place high in the new administration and began to assist in the reconstitution of the Xenophyte security. Limhi's first challenge, 
came as a result of the abduction of Lamanite women from the wilderness where they were dancing. This event and the subsequent battle are described in two episodes, or episode 13. Following that battle, the Lamanites quickly began harassment and intimidation short of murder. They lived up to the oath of their king, but they approached the line through the humiliating treatment of the Xenophites as servants. At the same time, the Lamanites completely surrounded the Xenophites with guards. This must have meant the stationing of Lamanite guards on every trail and path out of the Xenophite lands. Such a blockade offended the pride of the Xenophites, and they wearied the king with their angry desires for revenge. The king allowed the people to fight, but he did not lead them. They strapped on armor, by the way, the first mention of this critical military implement, and they went to battle. They attacked three times, and all three times they were repulsed, suffering significant losses each time. They were finally humbled and submitted to the will of the Lamanites. The use of armor, as with the other critical military innovations, will be addressed more in episode 14. The events in these three desultory battles seem to be similar to the battle in the Noah period. The attacks were probably not against the city of Shemlon, but instead they were against the guard outposts and small settlements in the intervening wilderness. Since the Lamanites had guards all around the Xenophyte communities, it is expected that the Lamanites knew of the preparations and the route of march and were able to meet them where the Lamanites had the advantage. It was during this dark time of repeated defeats that Limhi only moved around outside the walls of his city with his guards. He instituted formal welfare for widows of the battles and a general security program for the protection of foodstuffs. People only moved around in large groups for protection and an intelligence and reconnaissance network was re-established with the express purpose of capturing the priests of Noah. Limhi also sent a small reconnaissance party out to find the land of Zarahemla. That party got lost en route, and they found instead the final battleground of the Jaredites and returned with artifacts from that battle, which will be further discussed in episode 15. This reconnaissance party reported their finding and suggested that the battleground they found represented the fall of the land of Zarahemla and the loss of the rest of the Nephites. In this depressed mood, Limhi was outside the walls of his city when he came into contact with Ammon and his compatriots who had come from the land of Zarahemla. Limhi had them cast into prison for two days before he spoke with them. Limhi, Ammon, and Gideon, as well as others counseling with Limhi, came up with a plan based primarily on Gideon's suggestion to use wine to get the guards drunk and then to sneak through. Quote, the back pass through the back wall on the back side of the city, close quote, from Mosiah chapter 22, verse 6. The Xenophites accomplished the escape with the entire population, a thousand at least, and maybe more than ten thousand, and they snuck out of the land. Remember the population figures I previously stated. The people may have increased as more than a generation had passed, but the people have also fought battles where they have suffered casualties and they have numerous widows. The army of the Lamanites followed them after they learned of their departure, but after two days of tracking, they lost the trail and returned. It is on this return leg that the army met up first with Amulon, the leader of the priests of Noah, and eventually Alma and his people. 
The story of Alma has a bit to do with the military and political aspects of the Book of Mormon and will be commented on in brief, but Amulon is of critical importance to the development of Lamanite culture and civilization. Amulon was the leader of the priests of Noah, who took the Lamanite women captive and married them. Now I want you to remember, or maybe we just put this in some timeline context, this is about 24 or 25 years later when the army of the Lamanites showed up, confused and having been lost in the wilderness for many days after losing the trail of the people of Limhi. Amulon and his people sent their Lamanite wives to plead with the Lamanites that they might not be destroyed. Imagine that by this time there were also Amulonite children and possibly grandchildren present in this pleading. Amulon agreed to guide the Lamanites back to their land, but he himself did not know how to get there. Essentially, Amulon lied about knowing how to get back. A result of his deceptive guiding efforts, the Lamanite army, led by Amulon, stumbled upon the people of Alma I in their land, which they called Helam. It was the people of Alma in the land of Helam that actually provided the correct directions to help the Lamanite army return to the land of Shemlon. Amulon was granted a subordinate kingship over his land and the land of Helam, and he and his fellow priests and their assigned Lamanite soldiers treated the people of Alma like their servants. Later, the people of Alma were miraculously preserved and led out of the land and to the land of Zarahemla. I will dilate briefly on Alma I and his people to make the following key points. These events took place as much as 20 years after Alma I and his people have fled from the waters of Mormon. They had been in the land of Helam a while, maybe decades. Additionally, we are not told how long the Lamanites and priests of Noah abused the people of Alma. Based on the points of the story, it certainly lasted long enough for people to be burdened and wearied by it. It could have been for weeks, months, or even years. It is possible that Alma II who is a man who later turned and fought against the Lord and the church organized and presided over by his father, Alma I, that after they got to the land of Zarahemla and prior to his miraculous chastisement and redemption, which is a story that is central to much of the most detailed parts of the Book of Mormon, that Alma II may have been present in the land of Helam. If he was, we do not know how old he might have been. He might have been born in Helam, and if so, he could have been anywhere from a newborn to a young adult of about 20. We are not told Alma II's age when he disappeared from the Book of Mormon record in 73 BC in Alma chapter 45, verse 18. But we do know that his father, Alma I, was born about 171 BC and was about 50 years old when the events with Amulon in the land of Helam happened at about 121 to 120 BC. We also know that Helaman II, Alma II's son, dies at 35 BC. I give these points of data for you to consider why Alma II might be inclined to rebel. He may have seen his righteous father humiliated for his beliefs, and that might have challenged a young boy's or a young man's beliefs in his father's teachings. Why does all of this matter? Isn't it simply speculation? I can imagine someone asking. I think these details are given to us for us to make some of the connections, to be an active and engaged reader. 
The family of Alma I is important to the record. Once his group unites with the people of Mosiah II and Zarahemla, the record keepers and many of the chief judges for the next 400 years or so come from Alma's offspring. They matter to the story, and therefore this story matters. Back to Amulon. He and his fellow priests were appointed to be teachers over the Lamanites by Laman III. Here, there is the first real hint that the Lamanites were more than just in the land of Shemlon, as there is mention of teaching to all the people of the Lamanites and that they did trade one with another. Amulon and his fellow priests taught the Lamanites to write and to have commercial exchange. The common written language was critical to the spreading of common perception and understanding and necessary for the development of strategy and cunning. Mormon says, and I quote from Mosiah chapter 24, verse 7, And thus the Lamanites began to increase in riches, and began to trade one with another, and wax great, and began to be a cunning and a wise people, as to the wisdom of the world, yea, a very cunning people, delighting in all manner of wickedness and plunder, except it were among their own brethren. Close quote. Moroni links cunning and wise with wickedness and plunder. This is interesting in that cunning in the 1828 dictionary that I have previously referenced has a positive and skill-based definition. It is about art and craftsmanship. The word did not have the negative implications that it does in the 21st century of deviousness or underhandedness. I have talked previously about the Greek word metis. So once again, take you back to thinking of art and being an artificer or being one who is skilled and craftsmanlike. It is unclear how long the process of instruction, trade, and language development just described took, but it certainly lasted for many years and maybe an entire generation before all of the effects described by Mormon became reality. From the completion of this process forward, the Lamanites began to behave differently, and the concept of conquest of the entire land of Zarahemla seems to have become the objective for the remainder of the struggle between the Lamanites and Nephites. Other than the negative of developing cunning, the process of teaching this common form of literacy meant that when the sons of King Mosiah II arrive about 28 years later, the Lamanite leaders, and possibly though not probably, all of the Lamanites can understand their language and listen to their teachings. Mormon gives us multiple examples of conflict leadership in the study of the Xenophites. We are taught about the value and importance of intelligence and spying, preparation, personal command, and the problems of laziness, weakening of guards and armies, and the failure that comes from ill-advised and improperly resourced military ventures. We will address these lessons again in a later episode. The next episode is the first battle analysis, the first battle of the Nephite colony. We will discuss the battle in context and include lessons from the battle to help listeners recognize the value in understanding war in the Book of Mormon in detail to inform your own life. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at warinthebookofmormon at gmail.com. All one word, warinthebookofmormon at gmail.com.
www.thepowerofpositivity.com. Until next time.